Hello and welcome back to the Optimizing Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Marty Kendall. On this show, we take an engineering approach and speak to the experts about the insights into weight loss, fasting and nutrition, as well as real life people about their journey of nutritional optimization. Great. Great. Um, investigative journalist and author Mark Schatzker has been digging into uh, his deep, passionate love for food for maybe 15 years or so by the looks of it. He started with uh, steak, which is one man's search for the world's tastiest piece of beef, moved on to the Dorito effect, which is sort of a pursuit of the amazing tasting tomato and chicken like grandma made. And uh, more recently, he's released The End of Craving, um, which is yeah, completely fascinating. We were saying before, it's hard to put into a one-liner. Why would you write a book if you could summarize it in one line? But, um, you know, it starts out telling the story of how Italians versus the US tried to solve the polygra epidemic um, and, and how we've had two massively divergent outcomes and, uh, and trajectories since there. So um, I've been a massive fanboy and it's just a a real pleasure to get to chat to you after all these years of, of loving your work and being really inspired. So thank you for coming on. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure it's completely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you've massively inspired my thinking about nutrition. The Dorito effect just sort of blew my mind. And then the end of cravings sort of opened it up even more into the the mystery of, of food and nutrition and human metabolism and nature and um, as an engineer, I try to systemize things and reduce it to the minimum effective dose of, of useful parameters. But um, you just try to blow all that away. And uh, in the beginning, um, you started talking about carbs versus fat and taubes and um, haul and how, you know, Gary's tried over the last couple of decades to, to pin the whole obesity epidemic on evil carbs and one thing. We have attempted it in a writing a book to just simplify it to one evil thing and lose weight in six weeks and keep it off and and release first of January and uh, you know why did you why did you not do that I suppose it would be smart I mean if I wanted to make money I'd write a book to say that you can lose twenty pounds in two weeks forever and live happily ever after. Um, <sighs> Yeah, life isn't that simple. We all want that, don't we? We do. Yes, we do. Um, and yeah, why, why can't we? You know, that's where things start to get interesting. You know, I suppose I did. There's always the inclination to think it's one thing. Um, mm. I kind of had this epiphany when I was doing the steak book. Um, I was traveling the world eating steak. And what I noticed is that, um, you know, steak was getting progressively blander. Uh, the, the better mm. we got at producing meat more cheaply, we, we paid this price in flavor, which is to say, most of the beef we eat today, it's not awful, but it's just awfully mediocre. It just doesn't really taste like beef. Um, and I remember I was with Temple Grandin. Um, she's, you know, kind of, at least here in North America, famous. Um, she has autism and she has this incredible empathic abilities um, to understand the, the life and pain of animals. And she's designed slaughterhouses and really revolutionized animal welfare. Anyway, spent some time with Temple Grandin. And she, and she said, it's not just beef, it's pork. She said, it's lettuce. She said, everything's getting blander. And I had this epiphany, it's all flavor. And that's really what the Dorito effect was about, was the degree to which we can understand how our change in diet is explained through how we've just changed flavor. You know, wholesome food, bland, processed food, flavorful. 
And that is very simple on the level. The problem is as you start to get, you know, tunnel more deeply, you realize how complex it is. And when you talk to, about flavor, it's not just good flavor versus bad flavor, but it's flavor feedback. It's how we learn flavor. It's, it's um, you know, learned preferences. And, and it starts to get awfully complicated in a hurry. But I suppose that's what I love about it. That, that's where the richness is. That's where the fascination is. That's, where, that's, that's how it grips you. So, uh, yeah, so it, it really, I wish it were one thing. The problem with humans is we're great simplifiers. We're very good at reducing things to one variable. Nature is about complexity, and this is what we struggle to to grasp and grapple with. Yeah, and I suppose that's fundamentally part of the problem that you outline as we try to fix it with one thing, whether it be avoiding carbs or avoiding fat or maximizing protein or minimizing protein or adding synthetic nutrients into cure pellagra or uh, beriberi or whatever it is so um so how did you just get so fascinated for must be 15 years of been writing on this topic you've never been obese per se what what captured that passion for for decades nothing more than curiosity uh, it really started uh on a beach in chile probably 1996 or 97 i was visiting my brother and he you know, he he bought some steak. Chileans don't like Argentines, but they will tell you that the Argentine beef is better, which truly is a testament to its quality. Unfortunately, that quality is faded. But back then, there was really some incredibly good beef coming out of Argentina. And we, he bought a whole tenderloin. We grilled it over coals. And it was just one of those. It literally was a life-changing steak. Because wow. um, I just asked what I thought was a simple question, which is, why does this steak taste so good? And the answer was very complicated. Um, it has to do with what the animal ate. It has to do with how, um, you know, plant compounds that are in the grasses that cattle eat get into the phospholipid mm. membrane and then how we sense them. But then you get into deeper questions like, why do we like what we like? Why do cows like what they like? Why do they know to eat this grass versus that grass? And all of a sudden, you know, like a kaleidoscope, the world just explodes into complexity. And I've just been following this breadcrumb trail of, of questions about food and our relationship to it. Because when you think about it, food is our most... It's the most fundamental way we, we interact with the material world. We, mm. we, we eat matter in order to continue our existence. And it says so much about us on, on every level, nutritional, cultural, historical, anthropological. It's just, I guess the bottom line is it's just really interesting. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I've been completely fascinated and captured by it. And I suppose um, one of the things in your book, we, in the Dorito effect, we talked about Fred Provenza and his experience with sheep and, you know, feed them low potassium food versus high potassium food. And they crave that when they're deficient in that and got that just blew my mind to start thinking, hey, uh, you know, what's the the perfect diet for humans in different contexts? And can we quantify that to cut through all the noise and, um, you know, the argument of one thing versus another plants versus animals or fat versus carbs or whatever it is. Um, yeah, even processed food. But, um, I suppose what you've come across is that the most, you know, that, that this food tastes good to me right now is a really powerful indicator that that food is good for you and what you need. And, you know, er I grew up in the, the SDA church who have been very instrumental in, nutritional advice over the last 50 years and it's really a anti food shouldn't taste good you know if it tastes good it must be bad for you so you need to avoid cholesterol and protein and salt and saturated fat but 
the more you look at it, like my analysis that I shared with you shows that, you know, we actually seem to crave cholesterol, we crave sodium, we, you know, saturated fat to some extent provides, just provides energy. But if you're just eating beef with saturated fat, you're going to be satisfied and eat less because you're, it gives you what you need. So how much is that anti, um, you know, this food shouldn't taste good, you should avoid things that evoke pleasure has really upturned nutrition for the worst, do you think? I, it's it's so interesting you say that because it's, you know, that was one of the interesting things when I was researching the Dorito effect was it was almost so unorthodox to think that something that could taste good might be good for you because <laughs> we live in a culture which is so, it, it, it's, I guess, Puritan, I don't know if it's the Puritans or, or what, yeah. but we live in suspicion of the pleasure of food. We think there's something wrong. Mm. There's something dangerous about it. There's that yeah. saying, there was that guy, Jack LaLanne, that, that kind of fitness guru from the 60s and 70s. He said, if it tastes good, spit it out. And, and that's really not that far off our way of thinking. I, you know, I was born in 1973, so in the 80s, there was this, you know, campaign against fat and we vilified butter. And, you know, the, just the thought of like cracking an egg, we still wince a little bit because it's filled with cholesterol and, and there's it, just this fear campaign. And then it happened again with carbs. And then it's like, it, you know, spikes your insulin and there's internal starvation. And you're like, you, you know, like you want to go mad screaming to the hills, like food is going to kill me. And and this really goes back like more than a hundred years. Um, you mentioned this Pellagra epidemic, which I, I mm. talk about in the book. Um, this, I'll, I'll just, so Pellagra means rough skin in Italian. And it was a, an epidemic. It started in the 1700s in Italy and they called it rough skin because that's how it would start. It usually started with farmers. They would get like a skin scale on their hand, show up in April, it might disappear, come back the next year, then it, it would get worse. Their whole body would be covering these hideous scales. They would get, you know, delirious. They'd have horrible diarrhea. And eventually they would die. Um, so rough skin was this mysterious disease. It was an epidemic. It spread. And they had no idea what caused it. They had all these bizarre theories. They thought there was spores that got into your blood and burst into flame. They thought it was caused by too much sun, not enough sun, too much, too much rain. Then around a little over a century ago, Pellagra suddenly appears in Atlanta. It, it somehow crossed the Atlantic uh, and an epidemic had started to spread all over the South. And again, just like our epidemic of obesity, there was this you know rotating crew of experts with PhDs who pounded their fist on the table and said that they had the answer. They said things like it was caused either by living too close or too far from a river. That was an actual theory. Um, some people thought it was spread by insects. There was a sandfly crowd versus a mosquito crowd. They really had no idea what was what was the cause. And eventually an epidemiologist figured it out. His name was Joseph Goldberger. And he found out that it had to do with diet. Um, he, he found that if you fed people who, you know, who had pellagra things like milk or beans or cheese or meat, it would disappear. And this helped form our understanding of what we call micronutrients. What it turned out that these people were missing was niacin or vitamin B3. And, and, and this was one of the early indications that there are essential elements in food that are necessary for a diet. Um, so what's so interesting is how both the American South and Italy responded to pellagra. Um, North America embraced the cutting edge science of nutrition and said, if we're not getting the nutrients that we need, we'll put them in food. And it was this stance that there's something wrong with food that we can step in and fix. Mm -hmm. And not only that, there's something wrong with us 
because we don't know what's good for us. And you leave us up to our own devices. Mm -hmm. We will eat ourselves into a state of, of nutritional starvation. So they stepped in. They passed laws that essentially forced millers of grain to add B vitamins, niacin, thiamine, riboflavin, and the, and the uh, mineral iron to refine mm -hmm. carbs. It started with flour, but now it's in everything. It's breakfast cereal, donuts, you know, rice, corn flour. Um, and it worked magically. Pellagra disappeared almost overnight. It, it was this beautiful marriage of science and public health policy that we could use this new understanding of nutrition to literally, literally prevent death, prevent disease, and promote, you know, vitality. Italy had a totally different response, one that seems almost mind-bogglingly stupid. Um, yep. They didn't say, let's add the nutrients we are missing to our food. They said things like, poor farmers should raise rabbits because rabbits are you know, cheap animal to raise. They said, we should have communal bread ovens. They even said people should drink more wine, which just just like, oh my God, how dumb are these people? Wine, I mean, it's so hilariously Italian, like vino. Um, more vino. More vino, I mean, I, I, every problem. I sometimes describe to that philosophy myself, but, but there actually was a kind of wisdom there because not that they knew it at the time, the, the, they didn't know the mechanism, but the wines back then were more unfiltered than they are today. So there's more yeast floating around and yeast has a ton of niacin in it. So there was some kind of folk wisdom to this, that if you drink wine, that you can get rid of pellagra. And it worked. It didn't work nearly as fast as it did in the United States, but Italy literally ate their way out of a nutritional epidemic and it disappeared. What is so interesting is you fast forward the clock now, more than a century, and look at Northern Italy where Pellagra was raging and the Southern US and the outcomes could not be more different. Yeah. The, the Southern US graduated from one nutritional disaster to another. They starved, now they eat themselves to death. Um, it was the Pellagra belt has now become the obesity belt or the mm -hmm. diabetes belt. Italy is a whole different story. Um, Italy is food obsessed. Northern Italy in particular, um, they, it, Bologna is a city I spent a lot of time in. They, they have a repository in their chamber of commerce of official recipes, which is to say certain important foods like, like their famous ragu alla bolognese, that, that wonderful meat sauce, must be made a certain way. Tortellini, that, that beautiful stuffed little pasta dumpling, must be made this way, and it should be made in a broth that's made from a farmyard chicken, not just a regular chicken, they say a farmyard chicken. That's how obsessed they are. They actually have a golden noodle at the Chamber of Commerce. This is the this. perfect like platonic noodle. These people are absolutely obsessed with food. They have laws in Italy, like if you're gonna have a San Marzano tomato and call it that, you have to make it this way, grow it this way from, from this genetic variety. Otherwise you can get fined in the tens of thousands of euros. So you'd think, I mean, these people eat wonderful food. We, you know, we travel by the plane load to Italy just so we can eat what they are eating. Their, their food is incomparably delicious, and yet they're thin. The rate of obesity in, North, in America is 42%. It's even higher in the obesity and diabetes belt. In Northern Italy, where they don't eat a Mediterranean diet, it's not about olive oil and grilled fish. They are eating... They are eating um, mortadella. They are eating cheese. They are eating butter. They are eating. They're eating carbs and fat. The two mm. nutrients we've been waging war against. The rate of obesity is eight percent. It's mind-boggling. It's amazing. I mean, it's actually very. This ray of hope. Oh my God! You can have this wonderful diet and actually not be overweight. It's it's incredible. Yeah, that's completely fascinating. And then, 
as I was reading your book, um, I was I was writing a bunch of analysis and doing analysis of our micronutrient data, and and this chart popped up, and you talk about we're eating pig food. Uh, can you unpack that? I was completely blown away by that and the University of Illinois experiment and how that relates to what we're eating now. It's a really fascinating rabbit hole. So, yeah, so I argue in the book that this decision to fortify our processed carbs with vitamins, uh, there's both a literal price to pay, which we'll talk about in a second, mm. but it's also it's just so symbolic of our attitude towards food that there's something wrong with it. And it, that was just the beginning of all sorts of modifications. But let's talk about this, which is, is it a good idea to add vitamins to processed carbs? Intuitively, we think, well, of course it is. We keep telling ourselves we eat too many empty calories, things like when you're drinking a soft drink, that's just calories, that's terrible. It doesn't have the nutrition in it. And vitamins, I mean, they have the word vitality as part of them. I mean, how could they be bad? There's no calories in vitamins. You could, you could have 10 pounds of vitamins. There's no calories in them. How could they possibly be bad? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the diet that poor Southerners were eating, they were eating a diet of grits, which is made from corn flour. It's like the Italian polenta. They were eating pork fat and, they were, and molasses. That was their, the basal diet of these very poor people dying of pellagra. That's a really calorie dense diet, fat, carbs, and sugar. And yet they were starving. Why were they starving? Because calories are metabolically not energetic unless you have the vitamins that metabolize mm. them. So on one level, we see that a calorie isn't just a calorie. It's not, like we think of calories as being energy the way, you know, your, your cell phone needs energy or your car needs gasoline. But that's not really true. Nutrition is more complicated than that. And this whole idea that calories are just this energy input in the body, it's more complex than that. And where it starts to get concerning is when you look at the history of, of livestock agriculture. Mm. I started to key onto this in the steak book because there was this, um, you know, I talked a lot about feedlots. And there was this kind of lore that people would say one of the reasons these cows in the, in the feedlot keep eating and eating and eating is because they're not getting their vitamins. And I asked a feedlot nutritionist about that. And he said, well, not, it's, not, there's, it's not completely true because there's certain vitamins that are absolutely essential for that cow to stay in the feedlot, that they, they just simply wouldn't be able to process the corn diet without it. We get an even better picture of this by looking at the history of pigs. Um, mm -hmm. Let's rewind the clock back to around the 1950s. Um, and, and let's remember what the project for most farmers back then, this was before you know pastured pork became fashionable, they want to get those pigs big and fat and out the door as fast as possible. That's how you make money. And they knew that if you wanted to get a pig fat quickly, you fed it corn and you fed it some soy. And then they'd hit this wall, they'd get sick, they'd get diarrhea, they would essentially get pellagra. So they knew that a pig needed to balance its diet. They didn't have a perfect knowledge of vitamins, but they knew like you, you got to send them out to pasture or at the very least bring them green feed. Otherwise they will get sick and die. So the discovery of vitamins had an amazing effect. We never talk about this, but the revolution in agriculture where we started to confine animals to literally pen them in and feed them this incredibly calorically intense feed, what they call a hot ration, that was all made possible by the discovery of vitamins. Because now you didn't need to feed your pigs alfalfa. You didn't need to send them out to pasture. You could give them corn and soy and just dust in this these B vitamins and their just rate of gain took off. They had a you know nice big fatty rind around the chops. That changed farming forever. So we see 
there's this marriage of processed carbs and B vitamins equals fat pig. Well, that's great if you're a farmer who wants to make money really quickly, get them at the door fast. What if you're a human and the whole project of humanity right now is to not get big and fat too quickly? Well, we did the exactly the same thing. We said, let's add B vitamins to our carbs. If you're trying to prevent pellagra, that's a great idea. But in an environment like we live in today, where pellagra really isn't a threat, it's it's having exactly the opposite intended effect. Yeah. And no. we stop to think, is this a good idea? I mean, some people, you know, there's some people who question fortification, but by and large, we think, you know, the more vitamins, the better. Yeah, it's completely fascinating. In this chart you've got in the book, you show pigs on pastures sort of grow like normal pigs and then you put them in confinement and then you fortify the mix and then you fortify their ration in confinement and don't give them the alfalfa anymore and they they just keep on chowing down on the fortified pig chow and get fatter the, 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 the quickest, which is completely fascinating. And my analysis, you know, you look at you seem to eat less when you get more vitamin B1 per calorie from natural food. But when that's from fortified food, when you when you take away, when you just look at all the food, 125,000 days of data rather than 56,000 days of data from just real food, um, you don't see that effect. People tend to eat a whole lot more of this fortified food. And you see, like you mentioned, we started fortification in the 40s and then ramped it up in in the 70s and similar with b2 we see a big ramp up in the 40s another one in the 70s and then like you've mentioned b3 for pellagra massive ramp ups in intake of our vitamin b3 and similar for iron we're just fortifying these breakfast cereals to make them look amazing on the box to avoid apparently diseases of deficiency but it just seems you know i my brain exploded and I realized that what we're doing is, is making these foods more palatable. So you crave them. And, and, and don't we're, we're metabolically them. enabling them because here's the thing. Yeah. If you look at fruity pebbles and imagine it was just like, I don't know what it's made of some kind of carbohydrate. Um, and it's got sugar and flavoring, which I would never say is a good thing, but if it was just that, and that's all your child ate, your child would begin to eventually starve because they wouldn't be getting the vitamins. So what does the child do? It starts to eat other things. Like the pig, it has to go eat its greens. The most mm. interesting thing about that experiment in Illinois is that the, the pigs that were not getting the fortified ration, which is they, they had access to corn, but there weren't vitamins in the corn. It's like that turned on this light bulb of appetite because they didn't go over mm. to the vitamin trough and eat that. They went and ate alfalfa. They went and ate their greens. So mm. it's, I think it affects us in ways that we're not even conscious of. It's not just that it, it, it sort of you know, supercharges the metabolic potential of this, of this food, but I think it even changes the way our, the appetite operates in terms of what we want to eat versus not eat. And, and just yeah. on the most literal level, if you're feeding that, the pig that, those processed carbs and it has to eat alfalfa, that alfalfa's got fiber, it's got water, it's just literally going to slow down its rate of caloric intake. Yeah, completely fascinating. So you no longer crave the the meat, fish, and veggies. You just keep on craving the. the you can just keep eating, and eating, 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 and 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 eating,
So another thing you talked about in the book that blew my mind was the experiments of Dana Small, and she looked at the effect of flavoring and, you know, how the food tastes and how you metabolize it. And once you disconnect those with fake foods, with manufactured foods, with foods that taste like they're sweet but that actually have no energy in them or, or vice versa, you don't burn the food in the same way. Can you unpack that? I've yeah, yeah that this was fascinating. Um, th this is a phenomenon called nutritive mismatch, which has to do when the, let's say, the sensory properties of food no longer match the nutritional payload. But I'll just mm. describe this experiment. Dana Small mm. was trying to see if it's possible to create drinks that are equally rewarding but contain less energy. So basically, it's just say this drink tastes just as delicious, just as satisfying, but fewer calories. Wouldn't this be a great thing? Then we could go and continue to drink these drinks that we enjoy drinking, but we won't all get big and fat. So how do you test this? Um, it, it's 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 tricky, but but like a good scientist, she came up with an intriguing way to do it. She created five drinks and she used the artificial sweetener sucralose to make sure that all the drinks were equally sweet. They all tasted like they had about 75 calories worth of sugar. She then used a tasteless starch called maltodextrin to give each drink a different caloric payload. So one drink had no calories, one had about 37, one had 75, one had um, 120, I think it was, then one had 140. Um, and she gave these drinks to her subjects. These had a distinctive flavor and she let them drink them over a period of time so their brain could come to know each drink because the, the brain is always processing it. It, it does kind of a post-game analysis to say, how much energy did I get? Um, and she predicted, of course, that the drink that packed the most calories will be the one that has the biggest reward, you know, response in the brain because we like calories, right? Well, the the, the results really baffled her because mm. it wasn't the most caloric drink. It also wasn't the least caloric drink. It was the one right in the middle. The 75 calorie drink was the one that got the biggest brain response. She said, that doesn't make any sense because humans like calories. It's got to be the 140 calorie drink. So she did the experiment over. The same thing happened. It was the 75 calorie drink had just had this for some reason was just making the brain literally light up. And then this kind of epiphany happened where she said, wait, the 75 calorie drink is the one that is getting this brain response. And these drinks were all calibrated to taste as though they had 75 calories of sugar. So this was the drink that matched where the taste of sweetness matched the calories that sweetness is associated with. So that was an interesting indication. So then she did another experiment where she had subjects go into an indirect calorimeter, which is a device that can essentially tell how much um, how much food is being metabolized the, by the, the what's called the thermic effect, how much heat the body produces. So generally speaking, more calories, more heat. It's kind of like how your car gets warm, you know, the more you've been driving it. Um, she expected once again, she you know there was this hundred and so okay. So one day. Um, Subject comes in and drinks the 75 calorie drink, which is matched. Gets this nice little plume of heat. Everything's going as expected. This is just what the textbooks tell you is going to happen. Then the, a few days later, the same subject comes in and has the 140 calorie drink, which tastes as though it has 75 calories. Nothing happens. The mm -hmm. metabolic response is flat. This is mind blowing. This is not how physiology is supposed to work. What she found is when you create a mismatched drink, um, which is to say, the, the message it's sending the brain about how many calories are coming and then the calories that arrive do not match, the brain just sort of throws up its hands and says, I don't know what's going on. And those drinks didn't get metabolized properly. And it's quite insidious. She did more 
more studies. Um, these mismatched drinks cause insulin resistance. She, she did a study with adolescents mm -hmm. and they actually had to stop it because very early three of the subjects were found to be pre-diabetic and an ethics panel said it would be immoral to continue this experiment. So this is very interesting because for so long we've regarded sweet taste as this sort of frivolous pleasure that has nothing to do with nutrition, that this whole idea that the appetite is stupid. It turns mm -hmm. out that sweet taste is integral to nutrition. Sweet taste is like an instruction manual. It's telling your brain, this is how many sugar calories are here. And it's saying, and that is how you, you prepare to metabolize them. And, when that, them and when that signal doesn't match, the whole process j just goes awry. It, it doesn't work. Yeah, it's com complete, completely fascinating. So you also talk about how, you know, processed food that doesn't match, you know, how it tastes with the nutrients it contains. It's basically like gambling, like a slot machine. And I was completely fascinated by the concept and try to explain it to my son. And I couldn't quite nail it because it's quite complex. Why? Basically, it goes into, our brain goes into a, a loss aversion and just, you know, the dopamine overdrive of continuing to go, okay, this food isn't right. There's something wrong with my environment. I need to keep on eating just in case to manage the risk. Can you unpack that a little bit? I will do my best. I hope I can explain <laughs> it. Um, so, so the first thing to say is that this isn't just about artificial sweeteners. You know, my, my thesis isn't that artificial sweeteners alone are causing the problem. What's so nice about artificial sweeteners is, is the experimental model shows so beautifully what happens when, when we create nutritive mismatch. But when we mm. talk about processed food, there's all sorts of technologies that we're using that are literally intended to create a mismatch. We also have fat replacers. They're in all sorts of things. Anything that is light, low fat, uh, but, but even now you, you find them in yogurts and ice creams and, and these non-dairy you know, milks, um, uh, artificial flavors and natural flavors, which I talked about in the Dorito effect. There's so much that we do to process food to create a nutritive mismatch. So mm -hmm. there, there's this, as I described, these problems it causes with the way food is metabolized. But then you step back and you say, well, what does this do to the brain in the long term? It, mm -hmm. You know, the brain, as science is telling us, is not stupid. It, it is like a forensic accountant. Um, mm -hmm. The reason we taste food is this is the brain getting an early read on the nutrition that's coming because it, it needs to know what's coming so it can metabolize it properly. But it also does a kind of a post-game analysis that once you've eaten something, it says, what did I get? And this is why we develop taste for things that are fatty and things that are sweet, because we do need calories. I, I don't think we're programmed to be obese, but we do. you can't survive without mm. calories. Um, mm. That's why we learn to like them, because the brain says, hey, when I eat these sweet things, I get calories. When I eat these fat-rich things, I get calories. So you then have to ask yourself, what does the brain do when suddenly this signal goes off? Um, so we, we are informed by this by two kind of parallel um, schools of research. One is Pavlovian uh, reinforcement psychology, and the other is behavioral economics. So let's talk about the Pavlovian mm -hmm. stuff. You know, people remember Ivan Pavlov. He's the guy you ring the bell when dinner's coming. And eventually the doggy learns that when he, the bell gets rung, it starts to drool because the bell becomes a cue. The bell is saying, hey, dinner's coming. And this is how... You know, this is one of the core ways animals learn about the world. We are no different. You could be driving down the highway at night and you see a sign for a restaurant and you think, I'm hungry. And you start to think exactly about what you want to order. It was always thought that, that these Pavlovian cues, let's think about that bell, 
that the, the more they reliably predict the reward, the stronger the cue. So if that bell always 100% predicts dinner, that's a very strong cue. And if it just sometimes predicts dinner, it's a weak cue. Turns out that's not right. We started to do experiments in the, the 1960s, started with pigeons, and then we started to do it with rats, where we would take one of these cues, let's say it's like a button that a rat can press, um, or let's say it's a light that goes on. If the light goes on 100% of the time, that's a pretty good cue. If the light goes on only half the time, you think, well, that's no longer a good cue. That's unreliable. At that point, the rat would say, ah, I'm going to ignore that, that stupid light. What good is it? It's, it's wrong half the time. It turns out when the light is wrong half the time, this supercharges the rat's interest and fascination with the light. It elevates what we call dopamine wanting. This motivational mm. circuit in the brain gets supercharged by uncertainty. Why? Mm because humans are programmed to avoid losses. This is what we learned from behavioral economics. We find the threat of a loss more unpalatable than the prospect of an equal gain. You know, not losing is much, much worse than winning because a loss, you know, back in the evolutionary past meant you could die, that if you didn't get what you thought you were gonna get, something really bad could happen. So what we've done with all these, these cues for nutrients is we've made them uncertain. For millions and millions of years, sweetness was certain. It might have been hard to get that sweet fruit. You had to climb a tree. You might get into a fight for it. You, you might risk getting eaten by something. But when you got that fruit, if it was sweet, it delivered calories. If it was sweeter, it delivered more calories. When you killed the beast and it was a fatty beast, that fatty meat told your brain something true about what was coming. The, the sensation of fattiness meant calories. Well, then we invented fat replacers and now we can create the sensation of, of fat in the mouth, rich, mouth filling, all the rest of it, far fewer calories. If your brain is stupid, this is a great idea. If your brain is smart, it's a really dumb idea because the way the brain responds to uncertainty is with elevated motivation. And this sounds abstract and, and you know academic and I'll, I'll make it hit home. Um, think about the gas tank in your car. Think about the, the little meter, you know, on your dashboard that says how full the tank is. If that were wrong, if it said it was full, but it might be empty, might be half, you had no idea, what would you do? You just keep on filling up every day regardless. That's right. I don't want to run it. If I run out of gas, I'm screwed. I have to call the tow truck. I'm going to be late. I, I, I might get into an accident. So you'd, you'd probably become paranoid about it. You're like, I know I filled it up two days ago, but I just can't be sure I'm going to fill it up again. That's what your brain does. Your brain is really concerned with calorie calories. It needs that energy to exist. And when we start to make that uncertain, we respond this thing deeply baked into our psyches by evolution with motivation. So we don't sit there brooding uncertain, you know, with uncertainty. We jump at it. We want it more. This is how gambling works. This is why we gamble. If I say to you, you know, um, I, maybe you're a rugby fan or a cricket fan, you're Australian. What's your favorite yep. team? Uh, not a, not actually a big follower, but okay. I love that rugby team. But yeah. Well, if I say let's let's have a, I'll bet you ten bucks that your team's going to yep. lose tonight. You might bet that on me, right? Yep. I mean, ten dollars is going to make either of us meaningfully wealthy. This is not about wealth. But there's something about that prospect that pulls us in. That's why we like scratch cards, because there's something about uncertainty, about risk that draws us in because risk presented a threat in our evolutionary past. And we responded to that threat 
with extra motivation. That's why we like gambling. It's not because the prospect of winning, you know, because if I, if I offer you, you know, triple time to work the Christmas day shift, you're not going to celebrate that by going out for a big sick dinner and saying like, I can't wait for that, that shift. I, that's going to be awesome. But when we go to Las Vegas, we get excited. I can't wait to get to Las Vegas and I'm going to make a lot of, you know, it's gonna be fun, right? There's something about uncertainty that just draws us in. That's why we gamble. That's why we like sporting events. Nobody watches sports where, you know, it's like a 75-year-old versus an Olympian. That would be boring. You, We want the odds to be at their very peak. That's what grips us. Mm. And that's what we've done with food. We have made the cues for nutrition uncertain, and this goads us into wanting. And this is exactly what we see when we look at the neuroscience of obesity. When we we look at brain scans of people with obesity, they don't enjoy food more, they want it more. What we've done is we've created literally millions of people who want more food than they physiologically need. Yeah, it's completely fascinating. It seems to be the same thing in that gambling behavior in social media with your Instagram feed. If every yeah, that's photo a great was example. exactly perfect, you'd just go, okay, I've, I've got my feel, I'm off. But what happens is like every... 10th photo was like, oh, that was great, but all the rest are crap. So I'll just keep on scrolling to try and find another one. You get that loss aversion and and you just get addicted. If everything was exactly what you needed every time, you'd just get satisfied and walk away and go outside and play in the sun. But yet, you know, so many of us are just addicted to our social media feed. Just It works the same way. It, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. It works the same way. It, it, it you're you're lit with this this hope that something great is going to be there and um it, it yeah. rarely is the case but sometimes it is and that's what keeps you coming back yeah but the more disappointing it is nutritionally that the more we keep coming back and that processed food is sort of disappointing nutritionally it might give us a little bit of fortified folate or b vitamins but it doesn't give us what we really really need so we just keep on coming back and about but, and but back if it was absolutely it. zero if it was like what they were eating in the deep south we wouldn't you know they lost their appetite because their yeah. brains knew this does not have what i need so so it's like we're right in that that middle twilight yeah. territory which is the worst place to be yeah if it was the plain cereal without fortified colors and flavors and vitamins you just you'd give up on it and go find a good steak and some veggies but uh yeah it's just that middle ground that we keep on eating and eating and eating so tell us about the italians you i was fascinated by the last chapter where you just talk about growth and just enjoyment of food and you just talk about the italians that they're just completely outrageously passionate about their recipes and loving their food and you, you you bring it back from you, you don't just say eat real food or you know uh, eat unprocessed food or, or whatever you just say love your food enjoy your food be outrageously passionate about your food but what have you learned from the italians and, and how do you practice that well yeah because i was trying to figure out why is it that they took this this different path you know when the when the road forked and you know both countries had pellagra one said let's go with vitamins and the other country said, let's just get poor people to eat better food. It was so interesting because Italians looked at it differently. They, they didn't see it as a problem with food. They said food's actually the solution. The problem here is these people are poor. They can't afford good food. So let's try and get them better food. And, um, you know, we see now that they, you know, one of the interesting things, everybody argues about food. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go. Um, you and I have been in, involved in all these versions of arguments for years, right? That so are, passionate religious, aren't they? Yeah, insulin, keto, all this stuff. 
Italians argue too. Um, they argue, I would say, even more passionately about food, but their arguments are different. We put on the white lab coat, we become scientists, and we, we argue with this kind of hilariously absurd level of precision about stuff we really don't understand all that well. Italians argue about recipes. They say, you know, my grandmother's recipe is better than yours. This village makes this, this dumpling better than that village or the, the village's fight. Um, I was at a bean festival and I asked, you know, what's the best way to cook this bean? And one guy starts to tell me, all these other people start getting involved. saying, like, no, no, you don't want to do that. You, you, you want to put rosemary. No, no, you don't want rosemary. You want to do oregano. Do you put an onion in? Put half an onion in. Don't put in any garlic. It's just this chorus of voices. They start to argue about the best way to pair these beans. I'm sure every one of those preparations is excellent. But the point is, we did not evolve to be nutritionists. We evolved to eat food. And the pleasure of eating tells us something important about that food. Italians never questioned the um, that the beauty of food matched its its healthfulness. They believe in food, and they believe that this enjoyable experience of eating, of, of sitting down together and enjoying the bounty of the land and the sea, is a good thing. We always thought this is probably a bad thing, and we need to control it. And and we've been on the wrong path. And and they, you know, obviously, I mean, it it seems like it doesn't make sense because they're not talking about vitamins and and all this their way of eating is better. It's healthier and it's much more enjoyable. Yeah, it's like we should feel guilty for gluttony and you know, wanting more food and craving that food, but the Italians just going, oh, I love our food and we're eating these amazing foods. And yeah, the the, the beans from that hill over there where, you know, it's got the perfect nutrients, but that's why it tastes amazing. They're the best beans and they're just so passionate about how it tastes, which is really amazing. So after all you've learned, do you uh, take a vitamin supplement or ever use sweeteners? Or how does it look in, in Mark Shatsky's daily life? Uh, so it's funny because we talk about, you know, people always say things like eat real food, avoid unpro or processed food. All those things are true, but they're kind of like glum and dour and it makes nutrition sound boring. I say eat real food, but eat the best real food make make each meal a passionate relationship with food indulge yourself enjoy it that's how food is, is meant to be eaten it's meant to give you pleasure and you need that you can't survive without it um so it's uh i think that's the approach is is to really to really value you know we we, we criticize our, our cultural food traditions and think they're terrible we look at what our grandparents ate and think you know what, what idiots they were although they were way trimmer than we are I think we should value our food traditions and celebrate them and, and celebrate real food. It's wonderful. It's I, I love eating and I love eating good food. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't take a vitamin supplement each day? And, I uh, take yeah. one for B12 because okay. I took a blood test recently and my B12 was low, but this is, I have a history of this in my family. Some yeah. people, as they get older, lose the ability to absorb B12. So I take a supplement. Interestingly though, I've always, when I look at the foods I love, these are foods high in B12. I love cheese. I love dairy. I love That's eggs funny. and I love meat. I cannot eat vegan. I mean, I've tried. I can maybe have one vegan meal and then I'm absolutely in a state of craving by the next meal. I don't know how vegans yeah. do it. Maybe there's some connection with my requirement for B12. But again, I'm, mm. not, I'm not against people taking a vitamin if they have a medical reason to do so. Mm. I think this idea of literally dumping them into the food supply is, is not the way we were, we were meant to eat. There's a lot of argument about artificial sweeteners and you know do, do you think artificial sweeteners and calorie free beverages and the like are, are a big issue or i do you know, i do because I, energy drinks 
Uh, yeah, I don't. Well, you look at these energy drinks and they have a lot of these uh, fat replacers. Some of them have, have artificial sweeteners. Um, these are based on the idea that you can have some genius in a lab who knows more about what your body needs than, than food. And again, we didn't evolve to consume these things. Um, the, the reason I don't like artificial sweeteners is because these are, this is technology predicated on the idea that it's a good thing to fool your brain, that your appetite is by its very nature out of sync with your real needs. So we should fool it. I don't think this mm. works. The brain is much smarter than that. If, if, if the brain really were that stupid and it just sort of had this, this just sort of, you know, um, appetite for sweetness that was untethered to actual need, then that would make sense. But we know that's not true. The brain knows how much you weigh and the brain wants to keep you at a certain weight. Um, it's, you know, there's some very interesting science in this. Um, we, we, so one way we know this is that when we try and diet, that we get hungry. And this is, you know, um, diets tend to work for about six months, then they fail. And the reason they fail is your brain is stepping in saying, enough is enough, I want you to gain more weight. It also works the other way. When we do overfeeding studies and literally make people eat too much food, they hate it. It's an awful, miserable experience. When the experiment ends, the pounds melt away. This is your brain essentially trying to eat to a certain set point. So the appetite is, is much, much more intelligent than we give it credit for. And this idea that you can fool it, I think is causing the very problem it's meant to solve. It's, it, it, you irritate your brain, you, you, it doesn't get what it wants and it responds by wanting to eat more. Yeah, it's fascinating. So what's next on the horizon for Mark? What's your fourth book? What are you pursuing? What are you fascinated by at the moment? I, so it's funny. I don't know yet. It always takes a little while to sort of sink in. But what really interested me in this book was, was the degree to which, you know, we think we have control over what we eat and we don't. Everything we do, all these diets are predicated on this idea that we have executive control over what we put into our mouths and how much we think we can control that the way, you know, you can you can decide what you're going to do this weekend or, or are, am I going to steer my car left or am I going to steer it right? But the truth is we don't have control. Um, it's so interesting, these these nutrient wars we've been fighting, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, we declared war on fat. We didn't even limit our fat consumption. It just held even. And then we started eating all these carbs. Then we declared war on carbs. It turned out here, like bread consumption went down, sugar consumptions dipped, but we still find more food to eat. We, we can't control it the way we do. And this whole idea, like, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to watch my calories. It, it just doesn't work. It, 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 it can't work. And this idea that it could work has been this big lie. Mm. That's completely fascinating. So then the solution is just to nourish your body with what it needs and what you crave potentially without the confusion and overlay of artificial sweeteners and fortified this, that, and the other. I think it's to eat. I think it's to do what we evolved to do, which was to eat food and try and enjoy that food as much as we can. Yeah, you know, if you look at the healthiest cultures, Italy's a great example. Japan is also a great example. Very little obesity in Japan. I spent, you know, about 12 days in Japan researching the steak book and I, I've never eaten better. I, you, I struggled to find a bad meal in Japan. It was extraordinarily good. The, every meal was just another, you know, epiphany, like, oh my God, I, I ate a rice ball on a train, raw fish surrounded by rice on a train. Wow. Can you, I would never buy food on a train in Canada, let alone raw fish. And this was like exquisite. Um, wow. South Korea is another great example, incredibly high standard of food and very healthy, very trim people. So you just live your life pursuing the best food, the best fish, the best steak and, yeah, and exactly. loving every moment of it. 
like you hear a ghost, which is well, it's a funny too because all these foods reason. the scientists say are hyper palatable: the soft drinks, the chips, the the Kentucky Fried Chicken sandwich. I, I don't think these are good foods. The, these, yeah. if an alien landed on Earth, is that what you'd feed them and say experience my cuisine? No, absolutely not. <laughs> They're easy to overeat, but because they don't give you what you need, and you just keep on that into that. You never, you never marvel at. Oh my. God, what a great meal that was. It never. It's, it's, those aren't the foods you think about. Those aren't the ones you write letters about. So, <laughs> so find, find food you love eating and worship and enjoy and crave. I think also your palate can change. I've noticed that I've gotten mm. older. I didn't eat a lot of vegetables as a kid. I hated them. And I love them mm. now. Not all, but I really mm. do enjoy vegetables now in a way that I didn't think was possible. And I think, you know, as your body matures, your needs change. You know, like teenagers have a really high caloric need. That's, that's why they totally. eat what they eat, but I have a very different body now. And and my diet has changed as a result. Maybe you'll move on from steak to broccoli or something. For the yeah, I have been known to eat broccoli. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's been a real honor and pleasure. It's been a pleasure Anything chatting. Thank like you. To leave people with? Or? I think just, you know, really try and change the mindset about eating, about enjoying real food. I think that's that's where the answer is. And it's, it's just a much better way to eat. It, we, we're not meant to be afraid of food. It is meant to nourish us and pleasure us. Yeah. So let's do that. And definitely grab Mark's book, The, the End of Craving. Um, it's really mind-blowing. There's so much in it, as you've got a taste for today. And, uh, yeah, a really amazing book. So thank you so much for your time, Mark. Thanks for having me. Had a great time. Cheers, mate.